I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm live in 3FM's studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. Today, The Spin has one theme and two main event discussions. Intersections, Orlando and Charleston. Faith, race, masculinity, white privilege, homophobia, religion. A gay nightclub in Orlando on Latin night and a black church in Charleston. One is fresh terror, one a year's worth of mourning. They are both coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Keisha Blaine and Stacey Anshin. Dr. Keisha Blaine is a scholar, author and editor. Dr. Blaine teaches African-American history, Africana history, women's and gender studies. Dr. Blaine is co-author of the newly released Charleston Syllabus, Readings on Race, Racism, Racial Violence, published by University of Georgia Press and featuring essays from the likes of Dr. Brittany Cooper, Michael Eric Dyson and myself. Stacey Anshin is a Jamaican-born, Brooklyn-based poet, author and activist. Her debut memoir, The Other Side of Paradise. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hi. Hello, hello. Time for the first of our two main event conversations, Intersections, Orlando. 49, gone, snatched, dragged to violent death. We start with them. Human, loved, loving, dancing, sweating, music, laughter, drinking, flirting, friendships, sanctuary. We say their names. You. Edward Sotomayor, Jr., 34. Stanley Almodovar, III, 23. Luis Omar Ocasio Capo, 20. Juan Ramon Dorero, 22. Eric Ivan Ortiz Rivera, 36. Peter O. Gonzalez Cruz, 22. Luis S. Vielma, 22. Kimberly Morris, 37. Eddie Hamoldroy, Justice, 30. Daryl Roman Bart, 2nd, 29. Dionca Diedra Drayton, 32. Alejandro Barrios Martinez, 21. Anthony Luis Lorian Odisla, 25. Jean Carlos Mendez Perez, 35. Frankie Jimmy de Jesus Velasquez, 50. Amanda Alviar, 25. Martin Benitez Torres, 33. Luis Daniel Wilson Leon, 37. Mercedes Marisol Flores, 26. Xavier Emmanuel Serrano Rosado, 
35. Gilberto Ramon Silva Menendez, 25. Simone Adrian Carrillo Fernandez, 31. Oscar Areceno Montero, 26. Enrique El Rios Jr., 25. Miguel Angel Honorato, 30. Javier Jorge Reyes, 40. Joel Rayon Paniqua, 32. Jason Benjamin Josepha, 19. Corey James Canel, 21. Juan Rivera Velasquez, 37. Luis Daniel Conde, 39. Shane Evan Tomlinson, 33. Juan Chévez Martinez, 25. Gerald Arthur Wright, 31. Leroy Valentin Fernandez, 25. Tevin Eugene Crosby, 25. Jonathan Antonio Camus Vega, 24. Jean C. Nives Rodriguez, 27. Rodolfo Ayala Ayala, 33. Brenda Lee Marquez McCool, 49. Yelmeri Rodriguez Sullivan, 24. Christopher Andrew Lane Noonan, 32. Angel L. Candelario Padro, 28. Frank Hernandez, 27. Paul Terrell Henry, 41. Antonio Davon Brown, 29. Christopher Joseph Sanchez, 24. Akira Monette Murray, 18. Geraldo A. Ortiz Jimenez, 25. We say your names. We say your names. Those who knew them, disbelieving they were gone, invited us to better know them too. They spoke of moments, memories, intimacies, as they, like so many of us, struggled with the sheer weight of the horror. One was Frank Fernandez's sister. She revealed her brother's boyfriend somehow managed to get out of that nightclub, of Pulse. Her brother didn't. She spoke of a funny, loving man. He was a really good person, very outgoing, funny best person, someone you wouldn't imagine that happening to. His boyfriend was there with him, and his boyfriend got out, but he didn't. I'm just trying to be strong for my mom. I worked last night on hospital detail, and once I found out that his name wasn't on the patient list, I just prayed for the best, but unfortunately his name was on the website tonight. Frank Fernandez was a brother and a boyfriend, not a number. Mothers spoke of their sons, Christopher Leonenen. His mother shared the activist side of her son. When he was in high school, he started the Gay-Straight Alliance. I've been so proud of him for that. Vigils have been held all across the United States. Huge gatherings of voices raised in protest, power, defiance, and a steadfast insistence on loving. 49 people who walked into that nightclub breathed their last breath. That the moon glows. 
to bless you. It was Latin night at the Orlando Gay Club Pulse. It was during Pride Month, a celebration of the LGBTQ community. The emerging story goes something like this. Omar Martin, a 29-year-old American born and raised in New York, who settled with family in Florida, couldn't stand to see two men kissing. He had called 911 and pledged allegiance to ISIS. Martin was fascinated by law enforcement, according to some who knew him. Media images showed him wearing NYPD law enforcement T-shirts. He bought an AR rifle and rounds of magazines. He went into Pulse nightclub with a handgun and an AR-15. And carnage followed. He started shooting. Here's Lester Holt from NBC News. It all started at 2 Sunday morning when police say Mateen approached Pulse, a gay nightclub in the heart of downtown Orlando, armed with a handgun and an AR-15 rifle like this one. God. Mateen made his way inside and opened fire in a crowd of more than 300 people. Some of the patrons hid in bathrooms. Others ran, escaping through a back patio. Bomb squad and SWAT teams arrived within the hour. He wasn't stopping. He just kept on shooting and shooting. Those who couldn't escape became trapped, held hostage by the gunman. One mother, Mina Justice, received text messages from her son, Eddie, who was hiding with several others. I got the text after I talked to him. He said, call the police. So I called dispatcher and reported that it was a shooting at a club. From inside the bathroom, Eddie wrote, he's coming. I'm going to die. When Mina asked if the shooter was in the bathroom with him, Eddie responded, yes. It would be the last text Mina would ever receive from her son. Finally, at 5 a.m., police stormed the building. The sound of gunfire ringing into the streets. And outside, chaos. The wounded carried out by friends and bystanders. Family members rushing to find loved ones. No one can tell me where my son is. The FBI says they investigated Mateen on two previous occasions, and just moments before the carnage began, he called 911, pledging his allegiance to ISIS. President Obama, with his first statement, told the nation this was an act of terror linked somehow to radical Islam. Although it's still early in the investigation, we know enough to say that this was an act of terror and an act of hate. And as Americans, we are united in grief, in outrage, and in resolve to defend our people. I just finished a meeting with FBI Director Comey and my Homeland Security and National Security Advisors. The FBI is on the scene and leading the investigation in partnership with local law enforcement. I've directed that the full resources of the federal government be made available for this investigation. We are still learning all the facts. This is an open investigation. We've reached no definitive judgment on the precise motivations of the killer. The FBI is appropriately investigating this as an act of terrorism. Then more details began to emerge. Omar Mateen was an American. He was born in New York. He was raised in New York. His parents are Afghan immigrants. The family had moved to Florida. Omar Mateen had been under scrutiny by the FBI twice. According to some news sources, Mateen had been using a gay dating app and had reached out to at least two different men. More details. Mateen's ex-wife described him as physically and verbally abusive. We heard Mateen's current wife try to dissuade him from the attack. She said 
he wasn't a Muslim. Into this space came the hate, the Islamophobia, homophobic rhetoric. It came from reputable news outlets. It came from social media. It came spewed by folk like white male Christian Arizona pastor Stephen Anderson. I guess a, a Muslim terrorist went into a gay bar and shot him up. And um, there's 50 uh, sodomites, homosexuals that have been killed and another 50 some odd injured. And then the, uh, the Muslim guy himself was, was shot by the police, it sounds like. And here's the good news and the bad news about this. You know, the good news is that there's 50 less pedophiles in this world because, you know, these homosexuals are a bunch of disgusting perverts and pedophiles. That's who was a victim here, are a bunch of just disgusting homosexuals at a gay bar, okay? But the, the bad news is that this is now gonna be used, I'm sure, to push for gun control where, you know, law-abiding, normal Americans are not going to be allowed to have guns for self-defense. And then I'm sure it's also going to be used to push an agenda against so-called hate speech. The irrational fear of, quote, we're coming for your guns, unquote, is as predictable as it is frustrating and devastating. The New York Times reported on the gun Omar used, the AR-15 a gun used in mass shootings. One narrative was used again and again. It still persists. The worst terrorist attack on American soil since 9-11 via radical Islam. Details suggest more complicated narratives are necessary. What about Omar's relationship to his masculinity? What about his violence towards women? What about his homophobia? What about his sexuality? What about his Americanness? What about the numbers of people of color who have been killed by state-sanctioned violence? really the worst terrorist attack on American soil? These are the places where the layers that make up Mateen clash with staunch American narratives of radical Islam as the ultimate enemy, not an American, but a radical Muslim. As Casey Lehman wrote in his piece, quote, why was Omar Mateen initially described as a 29-year-old Islamic radical by a number of reputable media outlets and not a 29-year-old radical American homophobe with a history of domestic abuse who likely found some fertile ground for his American homophobia, misogyny, and abusiveness in ISIS propaganda. Let's talk Orlando intersections, masculinity, homophobia, religion, and America's domestic terrorist politics agenda. Stacey Ann Chin, let me start with you. I can't believe it's been, you know, 14 shootings since uh, President Obama came to office. You know, I myself, as much as I fight against um, the, the presence of these guns in our society, as much as I've been an activist for so long, as much as I've listened to as many deaths, um, I realize how desensitized I've become so that so much so that when someone said it's 14 shootings, I said 14 already. I don't remember 14. It seems like it was three or four, but it's been 14, and it just uh, it just devastates me to think that you know a person like me who worked so hard to remain cognizant and to remain conscious of what's happening, I can I too can be so desensitized, which shows you how successful these gun advocates, these uh, people who try to normalize these this behavior of these, you know, radical, uh, masculinist, racist, uh, homophobic men, American men who walk around with the intention to harm groups of people they don't agree with. Uh, you know, and I'm just still reeling from the sadness and trying to turn that sadness into some kind of uh, action call that 
that um that helps us to move forward and to to really take control of this gun issue and get it out of the hands of the people who seem to be able to acquire it so easily. Dr. Keisha Blaine. I think it's so depressing that almost a year uh, since the Charleston massacre that we're yet again having a conversation about another massacre taking place guided by hate. And in similar fashion, I think, you know, the fact that the media has emphasized uh, in both cases to try to frame uh, it as, on one hand, a story about uh, foreign terrorism as opposed to acknowledging that it was very much homegrown in the case of uh, the Orlando shooting, and then in the case of Charleston to to try to frame it as a sort of um, odd, unique kind of uh, incident that didn't represent a pattern of violence in the United States. I think in both cases we see the media's attempt to uh, try to move us away from the reality that we have some serious problems to address uh, in the United States, uh, I mean, as well as across the globe, that clearly uh, we have to be diligent about combating all kinds uh, of hate, whether manifested through uh, racism, homophobia, sexism, and so on. I feel like um, we're living in these times of a really stark racialized emotionality. Um, I was thinking about the psychologists who say that there are seven stages to grief and that going through those stages was supposed to allow your humanity to get to some point of um, healing and it's certainly being able to move, move forward knowing that you suffered loss. There is something about the normalization of American mass shooting followed almost immediately by the defense of the right to have guns and the rhetoric that somebody apparently is coming to get these guns from us that um, I think has injected itself into these stages of grief. And I feel like these racialized emotional times require us to reimagine these seven stages because it doesn't apply. The notion of anger is denied when there's still a fight to even acknowledge the humanity of those who died, particularly when they're people of color, that the exhaustion that comes with requiring that uh, Omar Mateen, who was born and raised in New York, whose family moved to Florida, is American and he's a homegrown American terrorist. His views were shaped by the realities and the masculinity realities of this soil, this being the United States of America. They were not shaped in... Um, um, this radical ISIS space that so many different media narratives are trying to push us to accept. It's this really, um, it's this insistence on a very linear way of seeing violence and terror. So it's putting a distance between the reality of what you create and the manifestation of that creation. As long as it's other then it can't possibly be really American. At this point, mass violence is becoming as American as apple pie. These mass shootings, Esther, um, they've, they've almost become a, a kind of Saturday Night Live skit in, uh, in that, you know, they happen and then, you know, people become, you know, sad and we have all these vigils across the country. And, you know, I, I, I want to hearken back to your saying uh, that the stages of grief, you know, it seems as, we are, if, as if we are stuck in denial. As soon as the pain happens, we are just stuck in denial. We just can't, we cannot accept that this thing I mean, ha- has happened in America. So, uh, so, so, so precise has been the, um, the narrative about what American is. 
it's almost as if uh, no one, no one in the in the in the in the mainstream media, no one in the kind of public imagination, can accept or admit or acknowledge that uh, that 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 being American is kind of totally human. In that there are things that are dark and deep and horrendous about America. And so when we talk about David Duke, when we talk about uh, uh, Timothy McVeigh, when we talk about you know, uh, Omar Mateen, we, we don't want to claim them as American. We want to claim them as kind of um, something that happens, this weird thing that has been uh, crafted by something else, you know, affected, almost um, perverted by something un-American in much the same way that... Uh, that you know other other countries that that don't want to claim that you know that they have kind of whole american they, they have whole human beings in their in their midst that they have gay people that they have you know people who um who who are straight that you know like the human we we have, we have to open up the definition of the human condition we have to understand that there are people among us who are are troubled and have mental health issues and that doesn't make them un-american it just means that we as a society have to change the way we, we navigate them and change the way we talk about them and change the way that we hand them weapons that could be um, devastating to the rest of us. Absolutely, and it really represents, you know, on one hand, a strategy that's perpetrated by the media, the strategy to constantly portray, when these acts occur, to portray uh, the perpetrators as outsiders, right, as foreign, uh, so that we don't have to in fact, acknowledge that this is a problem within, that we don't have to acknowledge that we have to do something about it, we have to take the steps necessary to bring about the change we want to see. And then, of course, it also represents a pattern that we see throughout history to be able to engage in a kind of rhetoric um, of xenophobia, of nativism, to always look to someone else, the foreigner, the immigrant, um, as the source of the problem, when, in fact, the source of the problem is not external. It is very much coming from within. And so we see that once again uh, with the Orlando shooting, the attempt to frame it as quote-unquote Islamic radicalism that comes from some other place. The very interesting idea of, you know, you know uh, on this show, on this spin, we have always talked about emotional justice. And a part of, like, you know, coming to a place of emotional justice is being able to to, to understand that the, that the human mind, the human, uh, the range of human emotions include all kinds of things. And the problem with masculinity as a kind of, uh, you know, one-sided, very like aggressive uh, space that has no no place for the uh, the the the, 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 the showing of pain or anything like that. Or, or softness or weakness or any of the, the, the ways in which we are completely human. You know, you, you touched on it before, Esther, when you said that, that this, this, um, this, this, this glorification of this hyper-masculinity, you know, this man probably had like, lots of pain around, like, you know, I hear whispers of him going to the club before, so he might have had leanings towards, uh, you know, like interest in, in dating men or whatever. I mean, he might have needed to talk about what it means to be a Muslim American and the problem with that living in a place where we target Muslim Americans and profile them. He may have needed to talk about, you know, so many things. And, and, and because we, we, we insist that men must be so and women must be so, uh, people had no, people, a lot of these men feel like they have no room to talk about or to be. And so it kind of like bursts out of them in these 
in these uh these ways and then the guns are so easy to, to, to have this beloved american rifle which i don't even understand how something becomes a beloved american rifle something that is meant to kill becomes like a symbol of a country that talks about freedom and safety and and, and all of the, these these narratives that we perpetrate about the american existence one of the things that um becomes interesting for me is that the refusal to recognize how um, a toxic masculinity which consistently results in the kinds of mass violence that at this point is endangering so many different people's lives. There's not the recognition that is attached to policy that there is a policy incentive in consistently having this radical Islam perspective when it comes to othering and using that othering to maintain distance in American foreign policy. It serves a politics of fear that has been a bedrock of American politics for so long, but it's also that it guarantees that there is no motion in trying to change the, um, the policy. And the series of behaviors that happen post a mass shooting are like, it's literally Groundhog Day. This time around, the um, refusal to really engage um, Omar Mateen's homophobia. Um, the news reports are emerging that he went to Pulse quite a few times. This was a planned um, attack that he seemed to be a man who was wrestling with his own masculinity. And that the manifestation of that wrestling was through violence. Part of the challenge of that kind of toxic masculinity are the ways that emotionality gets expressed in these physically violent ways making and putting us all at risk. The idea of a nightclub, places that just are, to extent, a certain kind of sanctuary, a certain type of space where you're going to for fun to be safe. In terms of the LGBT community, the idea that you gather, there's a certain freedom that happens in those spaces and that your freedom is now being um, ransomed on the basis of this individual's relationship with his own masculinity and the refusal by America to reckon with all of those complicated narratives and the ways that they intersect. And so we deflect to the linear narrative of radical Islam and refuse to engage the, the more honest but more complicated narratives of toxic masculinity with extremism, with emotionality and how those play out when there's not there's not a space to honestly articulate that emotionality. Absolutely, I mean, there there's so many ways in which we. Um, I, I don't even know. It's one of the ways I look at the story and I think, my goodness, this is indeed like you know a conundrum, you know, folded into another conundrum, folded into another conundrum. Uh, you know, the, I I um in my own response to the Orlando shooting. I, I, I charge the LGBT community, which has for so many decades been uh, focused on, you know, getting the right to marry, getting the, 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 um, the federal rights, uh, you know, getting a, a job safety. And those things are very, very important. But we cannot be single issue in our politics anymore. This shooting shows us that the LGBT community has to stand with the community that is uh, 
that is wrestling with with with, with the, the way in which guns are are, are are freely had in our in our society right now. We have to pull together and 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 and, and talk about what it means to be Muslim American, what it means to be Latino American, what it means to be uh, a, a gay American, what it means to be uh, an American who is not necessarily you know, showing whatever masculine looks like or what is accepted as masculine. We cannot be single issue. This shooting shows us all of these places of intersectionality has kind of col- have kind of collided in this one moment, this one space where everyone seems to, to be saying, why aren't they talking about the Latino aspect of things? Why aren't they talking about the gay aspect of things? Why aren't they talking about this uh, homegrown uh, American terrorist aspect of, of things? We have to kind of look at this with a broader lens. We have to maybe start looking at people as people. How, 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 how novel is that as an idea, Esther? We have to start seeing them as emotional beings which require emotional justice. Absolutely. You know, and I was thinking, too, in the case of the Orlando shooting, how quickly so many different media outlets have just glossed over the fact that this shooting took place during Latin night, you know, during Pride Month, um, as you mentioned earlier, Esther, and, and that's a part of the narrative that we have to address and that we can't gloss over uh, on one hand. And the second thing, too, is that, you know, in the aftermath of the shooting, it's very nice to go out there on social media and say, you know, we need to pray for the loved ones, we need to pray for, for the you know, those who lost their lives, to honor them, and then continue to advocate for policies that ultimately further ostracize uh, queer people in the United States. And so, you know, as we talk about the shooting, back to what I said earlier about taking the steps necessary, it's one thing to talk about marriage equality uh, in light of the the Supreme Court ruling, but then we're also seeing uh, attacks on the rights of queer people in the form of these bathroom laws. Uh, We're also seeing transgender people being assaulted and being killed uh, in record numbers. And so we have to then uh, step back and say, what can we do beyond just tweeting out, I'm so sorry, I, you know, pray for, pray for Orlando. How about some policy changes too? And that's another really, for me, an important um, intersection. The ability to mourn and find value in death that we were unwilling to fight for and support the kind of policy that would give that same LGBT community better life and rights. And the ways the um, intersection of policy and practice and death and life also manifest. And that, you know, I think this, this killing is a, is a particular collision of multiple narratives, the ways in which we're able to divorce our um, death emotionality from our living paralysis when it comes to the rights of LGBTQ communities. And so there's a way in which, interestingly, a community that is otherized becomes humanized in death. But in life, when it came to um, policy, there was the kind of othering that would happen. So can we create the kind of reverence for life that we've suddenly found in, in, in death? And I want to avoid, I'm not trying to generalize, I'm just talking about what I'm seeing in social media, the ability to mourn, the ability to recognize the right of a human being to be able to walk into a nightclub and have a fabulous time and then 
completely ignore the piece about the LGBT community and the rights that have been consistently fought to just be, to just love, to just have the right to be with the person that you love and um, not have your humanness demonized in all these different ways which is also a deep, deep part of Americanness in terms of a Christian aesthetic. And so that point you make, um, Dr. Keisha Blaine, about a morning that glosses over the complicated intersections of personality matters. And yes, of course, in the moments after the horror, I mean, even being able to kind of grapple with these intersections says something about the desensitization. I know as I was researching and reading the stories, I just was just crying. I just could not stop crying. And I just thought, this has become a conversation about numbers. And I refuse to allow my humanity to become numerical. It, it simply cannot become that. It simply cannot become that. I think we have to take it further. We, we mourn, we change our Facebook status, we, um, we speak out, we go to vigils, we, we, um, we insist that our representatives lobby and, and, and support changes uh, in, in the law around these guns. And I think we have to go even further and engage uh, people at the educational level about what it means to be gay, what it means to be an immigrant, what it means to be Muslim American, what it means to be the, 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 the kind of... We have to really put information in the hands of the people who seem to make decisions based on incomplete or wrong information. You know, I, you know, I think that this, 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 this young man really believed that being gay was something that was harming him in some way or harming the society in some way. You know, I think that we have to stop. Uh, you know, we have to stop pushing this notion that um, that we can have conversations with our children in schools. So education around acceptance, education around um, what different identities mean. I, I, I do believe that it has to make its way into the public school. I believe we have to push the people who control the gates of our education system. We have to uh, change, the, we have to shift the public conversation so that the public belief will also follow. I mean, laws mean nothing when people still believe a thing. There are so many countries in which it is absolutely, uh, it's absolutely legal. You know, uh, South Africa has one of the most uh, progressive uh, constitutions around sexuality and, um, and race, and, and, and still people are needing to be educated in order for the, the, the hearts of the people to follow where the laws are trying to have them go. I'm just gathering pieces. I'm just gathering pieces. I'm just gathering pieces together. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Stacey Ann Chin and Dr. Keisha Blaine. The Spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in 3FM's across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North and South Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast.
That was the first of two main event conversations. Time for our second main event conversation, Intersections, Charleston. June 17th will make it one year exactly, one year ago, one year to the day that the Wednesday weekly Bible study of North Carolina's AME Church welcomed a young white man called Dylan Roof. We now know Roof was in Bible study for an up to an hour before standing and shooting the churchgoers. He said as he shot, y'all take our women, unquote. Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, a historic and predominantly black congregation known as AME, and North Carolina's AME Church is more than refuge for black Christian souls. It has a long liberation and activist history. And on that Wednesday night, refuge turned into carnage. Black folk seeking sanctuary from America's multiple hostilities would be desecrated by a white supremacist Christian terrorist who satiated his killing appetite by spilling black Christian blood. I think back to President Obama's statement on this terrorist attack on black Christians. This morning, I spoke with and Vice President Biden spoke with Mayor Joe Riley and other leaders at Charleston to express our deep sorrow over the senseless murders that took place last night. Any death of this sort is a tragedy. Any shooting involving multiple victims is a tragedy. There is something particularly heartbreaking about a death happening in a place in which we seek solace and we seek peace, in a place of worship. It came on the morning of June 18th, just one day after the massacre. The president spoke of his personal connection to the pastor. It's history, and we probably all remember his rendition of Amazing Grace. What he did not do was call it a terrorist attack. He called it a hate crime. In fact, it would be an ongoing demand by writers and commentators and social media that would finally reach some mainstream newsrooms, some of whom did report that people wanted it to be described as domestic terrorism. But still, it took time before some even did that. The president did speak of AME's activist history. Mother Emanuel is, in fact, more than a church. This is a place of worship that was founded by African-Americans seeking liberty. This is a church that was burned to the ground because its worships, uh, worshipers worked to end slavery. When there were laws banning all black church gatherings, they conducted services in secret. When there was a nonviolent movement to bring our country closer in line with our highest ideals, some of our brightest leaders spoke and led marches from this church's steps. This is a sacred place in the history of Charleston and in the history of America. The Justice Department has confirmed it will seek the death penalty for Dylan Roof. A new book has just been released called Charleston Syllabus, Readings on Race, Racism, Racial Violence. It's a collection of new essays and columns published in the wake of the massacre, along with selected excerpts from key existing scholarly books and general interest articles. I'm honoured that I'm one of the contributors. One of its three authors is Dr. Keisha Blaine, who joins us on today's The Spin, together with Dr. Chad Williams and Dr. Kidada Williams. The three authors, quote, sought a way to put the June 17th murder and the subsequent debates about it in the media 
in the context of America's tumultuous history of race relations and racial violence on a global scale. The collection draws from a variety of disciplines, history, sociology, urban studies, law, critical race theory, and includes songs, poetry, slave narratives, and literacy texts. Let's talk Intersections Charleston, White Privilege, Race, Religion, and White Supremacist Christian Terrorism. Dr. Keisha Blaine, the new book is just out, Charleston Syllabus. Let's start with you, your thoughts. It's just amazing to me, um, sitting down, you know, this past weekend, writing these reflections on the Charleston Massacre, literally, you know, the Saturday before the Orlando shooting, I was writing these pieces, reflecting on the the, the massacre and, and thinking about how far we still have to go, what progress we still need to make, and then on Sunday finding out about the Orlando shooting and feeling just a sense of um, being overcome with grief and emotion and, and also recognizing, too, uh, the timing of both events. That, that struck me uh, significantly because, of course, the Orlando shooting uh, took place on the 12th of June and then the anniversary of the Charleston shooting on the 17th of June. So I thought immediately about the timing, uh, but also, too, as we mentioned earlier, thinking about the intersections, the connections between the two. It's so easy to tell narratives. Um, I think oftentimes uh, about racism and racial violence and then somehow detach it from other forms of violence, from other uh, expressions of hate. And, and I think this is a moment to, to really connect the dots uh, for people and to say that the struggle uh, is not sort of isolated on one hand, that we have to just come together and combat hate in all its forms. And so the Charleston um, a book, a Charleston Syllabus book in particular, was for us last summer, uh, you know, an opportunity for us to really educate the public. And Stacey mentioned um, uh, earlier the need to educate the public. And as educators, we just felt like we needed to do something. And so we started with this public reading list uh, for all of these texts on, on, on racial violence, on racism, and so on. And that evolved into this edited collection, which we're hoping will be a teaching tool uh, in the classroom, but also outside of the classroom, that people will pick it up and, and simply read and understand that the Charleston massacre and even now the Orlando um, massacre that took place need to be contextualized with a larger history. We need to see the patterns, uh, and we need to then acknowledge that for all the progress we have made, we still have so much work to be done. Uh, and, and I hope that the Charleston Syllabus book will, will really inspire people to take the next step. Stacey Anshin. When I think about the, um, the, um, the, the Charleston shooting, which, which um, you know, is more obviously, uh, uh, you know, presented, seen, understood as uh, motivated by race. Um, and, and you think to yourself, oh, you know, um, you know uh, I understand why the powers that be, the kind of patriarchal, um, white supremacist uh, beginnings of America would not necessarily see this as, you know, the same kind of crime as, say, um, uh, the, the Newtown, uh, the Newtown um, shootings in Connecticut. You know, what struck me most when I think about the Charleston uh, shootings and, and, and right up against it almost a, a year to, to date, uh, the, the, the shootings in, in Orlando, I think about how much America's, uh, you know, the kind of like mainstream right-wing American commitment to this, uh, this, 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 this gun, this, this freedom, 
of, 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 of owning a gun or the freedom to, to acquire a gun uh, trumps almost everything because I thought to myself, absolutely, when um, you know, 26 white people were killed in Connecticut, of course they would do something about the gun laws. And, and sadly, you know, maybe even some of my own uh, you know, internalized uh, you know, racism is that, oh, you know, uh, a bunch of black people in a church killed. I don't think white America would think, care about it as much. But you know, what, what is most surprising to me is how deeply embedded is this idea that I should be able to own a gun, that I should be able to kill someone coming to steal you know, a, 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 a fruit from my tree or to steal my computer, that I should have the right to kill that person. And that trumps the safety of white children in Connecticut, of black churchgoers in Charleston, of uh, gay people in a party in Orlando. I mean, that boggles my mind. And, the you know, I keep coming back to how deeply desensitized we are and how these you know, large uh, companies like the NRA and, and, and the people who actually manufacture the guns, how those people uh, you know, have taken over you know, our, our, our ideologies or beliefs uh, you know, and, and, and our ability to, 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 to push for the things that we actually believe are right. I'm struck that the, um, the, the cancer of toxic masculinity trumps everybody's lives. Absolutely. The killing at um, Sandy Hook Newton was supposed to be this kind of moment where there would be a universal recognition around the innocence of particularly white children given America's history. And that would be the moment where um, policy would meet outrage. And it didn't happen. And I thought, hmm, that is a lesson in just how embedded toxic masculinity is in terms of its relationship to violence, a relationship that is so intimate that it, at this point, what is required to divorce that masculinity from the kind of um, political cowardice that refuses to actively confront and engage the NRA and these huge gun advocates, the kinds of business that they do, the refusal to do that, the political cowardice in not doing that, is still more important than the lives of white children, the LGBT community, black Christians, and pretty much it would seem everybody else. Because that's the legacy of the narrative of these particular shootings. That's what it teaches us as a particular lesson. So that's one thing for me. But the second thing is I think about it in a more global sense as, you know, I'm somebody who definitely thinks about and writes about these things within a global diaspora context. And I come back to this notion of, um, in this case, America's racialized emotionality. And I'll always remember that when it comes to Charleston, that mass murder in America does not rob a killer of his humanity in the eyes of law enforcement if the killer and those of the law enforcement are white men. Because that stop at a Burger King is a lesson in that particular type of racialized emotionality. It makes me think of um, the, the recognition of the human need to eat versus watching a child, Tamir Rice, be gunned down in two seconds and not recognizing the humanity of a child playing. And the act of the mass murder, which is not in doubt, there's no doubt that Dylan Roof is guilty. But even in his guilt, 
his humanity, his human needs were recognized and actually not just acknowledged, but they were actually fed even as he spilled black people's blood in a church. So I'm struck specifically by that. And I truly believe that policy has to meet practice in order to confront attitudes and create real change. And this deep into the numbers of mass murders and in an era of social media where the ways we experience those murders and the reactions to them is much, much different. So social media allows us to have intimate relationships with other people's homophobia. It removes the distance that there had been before social media to be confronted by the kind of, of hate that can interrupt your day, Homo whether it's homophobia, racism, sexism, all of those things become particular experiences because of our access to social media, even as it allows us to have the beautiful experience of connecting globally and mourning um, globally in ways that are, that are powerful and um, healing. So the hate and the hurt and the harm is the, the kind of the, 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 the brother and the sister to the love and the connection and the possibility of, um, of healing. When I think about Charleston syllabus, these readings on race, racism and racial violence, Dr. Keisha Blaine, talk about what you want the audience who, who picks this up to better understand about um, Charleston. It began as a hashtag on social media that developed into a really powerful piece of work. It's evidence of that exact power that social media has. Absolutely. And, you know, at the time, in many ways, it grew out of uh, our collective frustration about the kinds of conversations people were having following the shooting. You know, oftentimes people will say, oh, we need to have a national conversation about race. A and I'm in total agreement with that statement. But I'm also mindful that we can't really have a conversation about race uh, if people aren't informed about race. Or, or these other crucial topics. And so people come to the table, uh, say they want to have a conversation about race, and they begin to talk about it through, well, my experience, and this is what I have seen, this is what I've heard from my friends. Uh, and I tell my students this all the time, I want evidence beyond your personal thoughts and emotions. I want you to point back to the text, to, to talk about the history, to contextualize. And unfortunately, people were not able to do that. And so we saw in the mainstream media, the way people spoke about Ruth, um, you know, Dylan Ruth, as if, you know, oh, it's, it's, this is, a, you know, a lone wolf, this is someone operating on his own, it's so far removed from American culture and society, and, you know, without saying, well, actually, he's a white supremacist, and his ideas actually reflect a long uh, and troubled history uh, of white supremacist thought uh, in the United States and across the globe, and so we need to then situate him within that longer history. Uh, and I'm not, you know, um, I, I mean, at the time, people just wanted to talk about mental illness. They wanted to talk about his whole life. And, uh, you know, and the, quite simply, those are not the kinds of conversations that I, that I felt we needed to have. I think we needed to, to avoid those kinds of conversations, which, which tended to deflect from the larger issue. Uh, he wrote a manifesto. He published it online. Uh, he made it very clear that he maintained racist views, and he also articulated those views right before and after the shooting. And so my response is, well, let's take him at his word, and now let's, let's contextualize uh, and let's understand uh, that there is a larger history here, first and foremost, and for all the talk about um, post-racial society, we still have a lot of work to, be, you know, to do. And so the Charleston syllabus 
became a way to say, you know, we're so tired of people saying that, oh, they want to have a conversation about race, but they're, they don't know where to begin. Well, we've given you the text. In fact, the list is so long, you can't even say, um, you know, that there's nothing to read. There's a whole lot to read. And so I think that moved, and to, to some respect, it, it took away that excuse. But let me also be clear, and we've said this before, some people are just committed to certain narratives, and they'll always remain committed to certain narratives. And so even with the Charleston Syllabus list, even with the book, there are people who will, who will read the book, who will look at the, you know, the reading list, and, and will still continue to maintain particular kinds of views that are ill-informed. Uh, but at least as an educator, you know, I wanted to be a part of something that would push us in the right direction. I, I listen to you and I think about the, um, the Charleston shootings and I think about people's response to it and I think about all the ways in which you say people will never, you know, people will believe what they want and they'll say what they want and they'll ignore bits of what they want. But it really, and I think back to what Esther said just now, that it's a systematic, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, a systematic holding of the gates of white supremacy in that, um, you, you know, I, I think back to all the times I've gone to Germany I've gone to Auschwitz, I've gone to Dachau, I've gone to all these museums that talk about what happened to the Jewish community. And there is a way in which um, no one is allowed to make any jokes about uh, the Holocaust. No one is allowed, you know, there are museums in almost every culture that is uh, set aside just to, uh, just, to, just, to, just to preserve the images and the narratives and the the stories collected around the Holocaust, there is a kind of seriousness, a kind of respect. You know, even when we think about more, more, more recent than that, what happened um, with, with um, the, the, the towers falling in New York, what happened with 9-11, there's a seriousness around it, a, a kind of um, respect given to the, the, the names of the victims, which, uh, you know, we just read the names of, of the victims from the Orlando shooting. There's a kind of a lack of seriousness. There's a there's a way in which, you know, it kind of, you know, I, I want to say it kind of escalates, devolves, uh, explodes, implodes into this uh, kind of huge emotional kind of churning, this cauldron that itself kind of uh, fizzles out and then becomes quiet. You know, our conversations around slavery, we don't have a museum that is just about slavery in America. There's no such thing, you know, but there are, you know, hundreds of museums across the world that are des- dedicated and almost every large museum has a section about the Holocaust. I don't see slavery being, being talked about in that way and, and the way in which Jim Crow happened. And, and, and as recently as, um, as the 70s, you know, when, uh, when the civil rights movement took place, and even more recently when, uh, you know, um, young black Americans kind of rose up to talk about uh, Black Lives Matter in terms of how black men are imprisoned and shot and systematically, um, you know, kind of silenced and marginalized and, and murdered. Uh, there's a way that we don't we don't give the weight of what happened to black people the same kind of weight that happens to maybe other groups of people. Even the way this has become a kind of national flood in the couple of days around this LGBT uh, question and what happened to the Orlando, uh, the people who were in that Orlando club, I've never, I didn't see the kind of um, outpouring for this uh, black group of people who were in worship. And, and there, that, that, that is deeply rooted in the 
systematic white supremacist beginnings of America and how much those beginnings inform how much the white male masculinity and the images around that and the power around that trumps everything, including the snuffed out lives of you know the, the kids at Sandy Hook, the snuffed out lives of the people in Charleston, the snuffed out lives in Orlando, the snuffed out lives of people in Colorado, the snuffed out lives of people in San Bernardino. I mean, we could go on. We could go on and on because there have been so many of them. But it really is about, it traces right back to this, the humanity of the white male and how it is that his rights, his feelings, his fears trump everything outside of that identity. Nine. There were nine. They are not numbers. They were elders and parents, and had favorite books, and loved hard. We say their names. Reverend Clementa Pinckney, 41 years old. Cynthia Hurd, 54 years old. Sharonda Coleman Singleton, 45 years old. Tywantha Sanders, 26 years old. Myra Thompson, 59 years old. Ethel Lee Lance, 70 years old. Susie Jackson, 87 years old. Daniel L. Simmons, 74 years old. Dr. DePayne Middleton, 49 years old. Charleston, we say their names. We say your names. That's your hour. Thank you to Dr. Keisha Belaine and Stacey Ann Shin. Thanks, ladies. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you to the Spin production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Put the Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.